Scripture reading this morning is from 2 Timothy, starting in chapter 3, verse 14, going through chapter 4, verse 5. Again, that's 2 Timothy 3, 14 through 4, 5. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scripture, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in the view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their ears are what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all the duties of your ministry. You may be seated. Well, I'm certainly delighted to be with you today. Even though the weather's threatening, you still chose to be with us, and we're very grateful that you did. Uh, Today marks the beginning of our spring gospel meeting. We have visitors with us. We're very happy that you are here and hope that you'll come and be with us tonight at 6 o'clock. And then each night of our meeting, as it continues, we'll be meeting Monday night at 7, Tuesday and Wednesday at 7. We encourage you to be here for each and every service that you possibly can. We've selected as a theme for our meeting this year, I Can Trust My Bible. And we are looking at the makeup of the Bible and why it leads us to say that, that we can trust our Bible. And with each lesson, we progress a little further into that conclusion. And so I would encourage you to be with us for each lesson, each and every service that we have, because it's going to deal with just another facet and carry us a little further toward the conclusion of us saying, I can trust my Bible. And I hope that each of us will go from this place with that conviction in heart that we can trust our Bible. Because if we've said so many times, we continue to say over and over again that the Bible's the greatest book in the world. So I'm delighted to be with you in this spring gospel meeting. I'm glad that you're with us. I encourage you to come and be with us for each of our services. And I want to begin our discussion, as I did this morning, as to why was the Bible written. Before I can ever come to, a, to an understanding of uh, saying I can trust my Bible, I've got to ask the question, why was it written? And we spent some time this morning talking about why it was not written. And I'll certainly not try to rehearse all of those particular points, but as I scan through them this morning, you can see some of the reasoning that went into our discussion today. These are reasons why the Bible was not written. Sometimes people get the focus out of, out of sight and, and out of sync with really the kind of consideration that they should have. The Bible was not written for these reasons, though many people will go to it or shun it 
for those reasons. Uh, sometimes people will go to the Bible and say, well, you know, the Bible's a great book that helps me with my self-esteem, for example. And I'd have to say yes to that. The Bible does help our self-esteem. And some of our uh, positive mental attitude experts will go to the Bible and they will say, well, look what we've discovered here from the Bible. The Bible really addresses about us feeling better about ourselves. And the Bible really helps us with a better self-esteem. And if you really don't have a good feeling about yourself, you'll have a better feeling about yourself once reading and understanding the Bible. And to that I'd have to say yes. Uh, The Bible helps us with our self-esteem. And the Bible makes us well-rounded individuals and helps us look upon ourselves and look upon others in the proper light. And much of what the Bible has to say addresses itself to that particular matter. If I were to ask the question, the Bible was written for our self-esteem, I'd have to say no. There are other reasons with regard to why the Bible was written. And nowhere do I read in the Bible that the Bible was written for my self-esteem, though I benefit from that. It is surely a side benefit that I will receive when I study the Bible. I'm going to feel better about myself when I read the Bible when I know that I do what the Bible says and I've done what the Bible's told me to do, I'm going to naturally feel better about myself. But the Bible wasn't written for that purpose. And so in this hour that we come together, the next progression in our study would have to be, why was the Bible written? And I've taken a statement from a Bible passage for each point. The Bible was written that we might believe. And I'd like to put a lot of emphasis and weight on this particular matter, as the Bible does. Why do you have the Bible? The Bible was written that I might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And you'll recognize this passage from John chapter 20 and verse 30. And I'd like to read that for us uh, this morning because it serves, verse 30 and 31, it serves as a great purpose statement as to why the Bible was written. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. It's a wonderful purpose statement for the Gospel of John. He said there were many other signs which Jesus did. The word sign naturally points to something greater, and the something that's greater that the signs pointed to was Jesus Christ. And the signs which Jesus did, and the many, even though many are not written in this book, they were written for the purpose that we might come to know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that we would grow in faith in that prospect. Now that to me is an interesting part about the Bible, where John is saying, by means of inspiration, that the written record has just as much credibility as the actual phenomenon had. And I've often thought about this. I wish I had been there to see that. I wish I had been there to see the walking on the water or the turning of the water into wine or the miraculous multiplication of the loaves and the fishes. Wouldn't that have been grand to see that? To be there at the time and and be able to witness firsthand those particular matters. And here he's raised Lazarus from the dead. What a thing to be able to see and to experience firsthand. But John is saying the Bible was written that you can believe 
The Bible was written even though you weren't there, even though you didn't experience it firsthand, and even though you didn't see the actual occurrence of that event, you can still believe in that event because the written record carries as much credibility as actually seeing the natural phenomena itself, the actual thing take place. These things are written so that you may believe. And he gives me quite a purpose statement with regard to why was the Bible written. The Bible was written for my faith so that I could believe. Now Jesus tells us in one of those wonderful parables, that parable of the sower, and Luke's version of it in Luke chapter 8, how that the seed went by the hard path or the wayside, and the fowl of the air came and devoured that seed up. And the apostles are somewhat in the dark of the matter, and Jesus explains the meaning of the parable. He says, now the sower sows the word of God. Now the devil comes and takes the word of God out of the heart of the individual. In other words, to keep us from believing, the devil will do his best to keep the word of God out of our heart and out of our mind. Because he knows faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God, Romans 10, 17. He knows that if I can keep the Bible out of their heart and keep the Bible out of their mind, they will not believe. And someone might ask, well, Brother Laws, you're really belaboring this particular point. You're really uh, talking about something that, you know, all of us accept already. And it really has no real importance to us at the present. But that's not true. All it takes is for a casual reading of the religious literature today. A casual perusal of what's being written. Most of it. I've not read most of it. But most of what I've read doesn't say anything about the Bible at all. It is not based in the Scripture. It is not considering the Scripture. It might start with some kind of religious title or religious theme, but it doesn't really develop and analyze the Word of God. It is designed more to entertain. It has a lot of cute stories and clever narratives. Sometimes even the promoters of such books are very eloquent preachers, and they're very fervent in spirit. And they speak boldly with great enthusiasm. And it's very easy to be lulled into a type of receiving good words and fair speech. But it's not the Scripture. In such a Fifth Avenue presentation of religion, it becomes very important for us to understand that the Bible was written for a purpose. The Bible was written that we might believe. And I want to understand that Bible. And I want to know it. And I want to apply it. So that when I read this over here, I can distinguish between the two. Some people have never reached that point. Simply because it's a religious book that's been offered does not make it part of the teaching of the Bible. In the book of 1 Peter, Peter examines this very point that we're, just, uh, we're discussing. And I'm in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 22, and he discusses this wonderful matter. And 
he's talking about the importance of God's Word. And there's a great verse there. I'm in 1 Peter chapter 1. And as I look at the passage, you know, just 18 jumps out at me. Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. That word ransom, we've been purchased. And really ransom means the, gives us the idea. I was really helpless in this matter. I was like a slave to sin. And I was really helpless to that. But Christ came along and God came along. And through that sacrifice of Jesus, the ransom price was paid. And now I'm free. Words like forgiveness talk about my responsibility to receive the gift that God is offering. The gift of forgiveness or salvation. Words like ransom emphasize the importance of what God did. Words like forgiveness talk about the importance of what I need to do in order to receive the forgiveness. And he's saying that's done by the precious blood of Christ. And he's emphasizing this wonderful discussion about being ransomed from sin and about being forgiven from sin. And he comes to verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. For a sincere brotherly love, love another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not a perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding Word of God. You see, the Bible was written so that I could understand and respond to the offer of forgiveness and the blood of Christ, that I might receive this forgiveness of sin. I use as an interesting point here, and I just find myself in these Bible passages and so many great points, so many great words come to mind. Born again? Well, that reminds me of what Jesus said to Nicodemus a long time ago. Since you've been born again, 1 Peter chapter 2 and 23, not a perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding Word of God. Well, we've been born again. Over there in John chapter 3, you'll remember that discussion where Jesus has with Nicodemus. You must be born again, chapter 3, verse 3. Truly, truly, I say, unless you're born of water and the Spirit, a man cannot enter the kingdom of God. He's talking about the process of becoming a Christian, being born again, being born from above. The actual begettal taking place with the work of the Spirit through the Word. And then the water having reference to the actual delivery of the individual into the kingdom of God, receiving the forgiveness of sin. One birth, two elements. The Spirit's work in the matter in revealing the written Word. Why, the water and that matter as a symbol whereby I'm immersed in water and receive the actual forgiveness of my sins. And Peter says, now you've been born again. And so I'll go back to John 3, 3 and 5, and I find involved in that being born again is the work of the Spirit revealing the will and the Word of God. And the Spirit working on the individual through the Word, committing that person's heart because of what the Word said, and that Word now motivating that person with a steadfast, obedient faith to be baptized into Christ for the remission of sins. 
And he tells me that that was made possible through the Word. But of imperishable through the living and abiding Word of God. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23. And then he says in verse 24, For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. This word was written so that you can believe. This word was written so that I could learn what God has in store for me and the responsibility that I have toward Him. Go on into 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander like newborn babes, newborn infants. Long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. Go forth fresh from the new birth experience and imbibe or ingest the inspired word which is written. Why? So you can believe. You can believe about God's divine will for our lives. Now a good friend of mine I went to school with, I saw one time, written me a note or two here and there, and I write back and that kind of thing, and I could tell he was headed and drifted in the wrong direction. And I would write back, and then he would respond, and over a rather lengthy period of time, very well-educated, very articulate individual. And in turn, uh, he finally, we get to meet up on, it just so happened, circumstances. I was there and he came, happened to be by. I said, Jim, we got to talk about these men. I said, look, let's stick with the Word. Let's go by the Word of God. He said, Jim, you're going to have to face some facts. I said, all right, what are the facts? You're going to have to get modern in order to survive. I said, what does that mean? Of course, I knew what he was saying. You're going to have to get modern. What he meant by that was you're going to have to remodel. You're going to have to refit. You're going to have to refigure this word so that people will find it more acceptable, more agreeable, more palatable. Now, in our discussion today and in our, our uh, lesson text, I made reference to 2 Timothy chapter 4, and it was read today, and thank you for reading that Bible passage. But in 2 Timothy chapter 4, there he tells us in verse 3, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And I took it that that's what this old friend of mine was trying to get me to do. Try to be more of a popular preacher. Instead of preaching the word of reconciliation, he was recommending more of a word of renovation. Try to change it. Try to make it more in keeping with what people want to hear. But Paul understood that particular matter, and so he said in this passage, he said, now there are going to be people who have itching ears. Now the itching ears has always been an interesting phrase, but I realized that it was a common thing in Paul's day to reference it that way. The itching ears was the ear who wanted to hear it its way, who tickled his ears. I want to hear this. I don't want to hear that. 
but the Bible was written that I might believe. If I renovate the Bible, if I remodel the Bible, if I rechange the wording of the Bible to make it more user-friendly, then I'm not going to believe. I'm not going to have the kind of faith that God wants me to have whereby I'll receive the blessings of forgiveness which I so desperately need. The call of the hour is to have a renovation of the Word of God rather than accept the Word of God for what it says and what it is, the inspired Word of God. And so John was saying in his passage, this is why the Bible was written. The Bible was written so that you can believe. And Jesus did many other things, many other signs pointing to the great life of Christ. But you can believe and you can have life by believing in these facts about Jesus. What a great purpose for the Bible. But the Bible gives us a number of instructions with regard to its purpose the Bible is telling us, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, a, a very interesting point about these things were written for my instruction. Uh, I'm to learn from them. If you'll turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, I'll spend just a brief moment talking about this great paragraph of Scripture. The Bible was given as admonition, as instruction, as warning. The Bible's warning me about certain things, and I need to understand that as I go to the Bible. Now, these things took place as examples for us, verse 6, that you might not desire evil as they did. Skip on down to verse 11 for a moment. Now, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Well, why was the Bible written to begin with? It was written down so that we could have instruction and warning and clarification about matters. Now let me spend some time with the context of 1 Corinthians chapter 10. He makes reference to the Old Testament people of Israel, and he goes through the problems that they had with sin. And it was a very serious matter. As you go through, they... They were coming out of Egyptian bondage and they were being led by the power of God and the instrumentality of Moses by the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night and they come to the great sea and there he leads them miraculously across the great sea and thus Paul references this particular historical event in our 1 Corinthians chapter 10. He said, now here's some of the problems. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. Here's a warning. Why was the Bible written? It was written to warn us. Now, don't you do this. Uh, the, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. What's the Bible doing there? It's warning. It's instructing. Why was the Bible written? Why well, it was written to help us understand how to live so as to avoid the pitfalls that are so common out there. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents, nor grumble as some of them did, verse 10, and were destroyed by the destroyer. And here's the point. Now these things happened to them as example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. And therefore, his great point, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Be careful. What's the Bible doing here? The Bible is saying, I'm warning you. I'm alerting you. These things, the Bible says, were written down 
so you can learn not to do them. Why was the Bible written? Well, the Bible was written to help me, to keep me from sin. The Bible was written to keep me in a pure life with a pure heart and with a pure body. And the Bible is written down for my instruction, for my warning, for my admonition. But I must hurry. The Bible is written down to teach me how to behave. And I'm looking, and I think Paul is looking at a little different point from what we're making already. And it's not so much a matter of behavior as far as personal behavior is concerned, expressed for us in 1 Timothy chapter 3, 14. But here it has to do with the behavior of those in the house of God. Let's see the passage together. And let's see why the Bible was written. It tells us in 1 Timothy chapter 3, in the Bible passage, verse 14, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you. What's he, he, I'm writing. I'm writing them down for you. I'm writing these things to you so that what, if I delay, you may know how you ought to act or behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and, and buttress of the truth. And then this wonderful passage, and I must not delve into that. I love this discussion, and Paul does this all the time. He'll start talking about a great Bible principle, and what does he do? He just sort of erupts in praise about God and Christ, and that's what you have in this particular brief concluding paragraph to chapter 3. But the point that is in 1 Timothy chapter 3, 14 and 15, Paul said, now I'm writing this down. I'm going to have to go on up into Macedonia. You're in Ephesus, which is in Asia. I'm going into the northern portion of Greece, and I'm going up there, and I'm going to have to deal with matters. And if I tarry long up there, I'm writing these things down so that you know how to behave, how to conduct yourself in the worship and the assembly of the church. It was necessary. Because as you and I have studied in our studies of uh, 1 Timothy, they had problems. They had problems trying to change the worship. They had problems trying to change the purpose. And people had to be redirected in this matter. And he said, I'm writing these things down so that you will know how the church is to function. Uses a wonderful word there, household. You know what household is. It's a favorite word of Paul. He's used it a number of times already. It's the family. I want you to know how to behave yourself in the family, in the household. And he's giving us a pattern to follow. And he said, this is what I want you to follow, and I want all the church to follow, the pattern that's given for the church, the assembly, the work of it, the organization of it, the purpose of it, the terms of entrance into it. This is what I want you to teach and I want you to maintain. And then he describes the church in a wonderful way, and I I dare not forget this particular point, but he says it is the pillar and buttress of the truth. I was in, um, I had the privilege of going to um, British Museum years ago, and it was really a great museum. I've always enjoyed going to the great museums of the world. There are a number that I'd like to go to that I haven't been able to go to yet, but I do look forward to the opportunity, Lord willing, to go and visit them. And one of them is the British Museum. And in the Ephesus Gallery of the British Museum, and I can't explain exactly how to get there. You've got to go in, turn left, go through a couple of huge porticos, and as you go in, you come into what's called the Ephesus Gallery. There's a pillar 
of the ancient temple of Artemis in Ephesus. And that pillar is six feet in diameter, 55 feet tall. That's one of them. A huge pillar erected in honor of this pagan god of the Ephesians, Artemis. And I don't know, I can't be certain of that, but I just have in my own mind the idea Paul might be thinking about that. The great colonnade supporting the roof of the Temple of Artemis, as great as those stone columns were. Yet he says the church is a pillar that supports truth. Now in the original language, the the is not there. Uh, It has, which is the church, a pillar here in the English Standard Version is more accurate. It's called a pillar, not the pillar. And I suspect that what Paul had in mind there is that there are other pillars that support truth. There's Jesus Christ and his story. There's the resurrected Christ. There's the miracles that Christ performed. There's the church. All of these are great pillars which support the truth. One of the great pillars that supports the truth is the church of the living God. The Bible was written so that we would know how to behave in the family of God. It tells us how to worship. It tells us what to believe. It tells us what kind of hearts we should have. This is why the Bible was written. It has specific purposes behind it that we believe, that it warns us, instructs us. It tells us very carefully that we're to behave ourselves in a certain way and to conduct ourselves in the body of Christ accordingly. And when we deviate from that, we are a crumbling pillar. We do not have the strength to support truth, the truth, and and in turn we must to be pleasing in the sight of God. This point so closely related to the one that I've made already, I suspect that I will uh, be very brief with regard to why was the Bible written. As I spent so much time this morning in our Sunday morning Bible class talking about why it was not written, I, I do want to spend some special time in our worship service today talking about why it was. And I found this statement in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 1. And it surely helps me step forward closer to the goal of saying that I can trust my Bible. When I read this passage in 1 John 2, 1, My little children, I'm writing these things. He's what? I'm writing. Well, John, why are you writing? My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous This word was given to me to keep me from sin. Now, naturally, the point that was made about our instruction, you'll say, well, that's the same point. Not quite. The Bible is warning me. The Bible is cautioning me. The Bible is admonishing me. 
But here his point in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1 is, we have an advocate when the Father, when we do sin. I'm writing this, that you will not sin. But we have an advocate with the Father to keep you from sinning. And when sin does occur in your life, then in turn there's a way of escape from it. Mom and Dad used to tell us, do not play in the mud in your church clothes. Do not play in the mud with your church shoes on. Take your good clothes off before you get outside to play. And you know what sometimes we'd do? We'd get out in the mud with our church clothes and with our church shoes on. John is saying, when that happens, when you do sin, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, and I'm not going to forget that. And the one thing that helps me remember that important matter is the fact that it's been written down for me. The Bible was written so that I would not sin. Closely related to that, he tells me in John chapter 5 and verse, 1 John chapter 5 and verse 13, that the Bible was written that I may have eternal life. And not only written that I may have eternal life, but written so that I may know that I have eternal life. I write these things. John, why did you write them? Why is the Bible written to us? 1 John chapter 5 and 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of Him. We can know. Do you just notice how many times he tells us about the matter? You can know this. You can know this. You can know that you have eternal life. Jump on down to that great verse. I'm in 1 John chapter 5. And I'm examining what does the Bible say as to why it was written. And I learn in verse 19 and 20. We know that we are from God. And the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true. In His Son, Jesus Christ, He is the true God and eternal life. Isn't that a great verse? How would I ever know that without the Bible? I'd never know about my eternity. I'd never know about these particular matters I would be just like the rest of the world in darkness. But now I can understand. And now I can know that I have eternal life. Because I've read it from the pages of God's Word. It brings me a step closer to saying, I can trust my Bible. I can believe in it. I can have confidence in it. But I'm not quite there yet. Simply because it says it's trustworthy doesn't uh, sell me on it. Simply because a man stands up before me and says, yes, you can have confidence in it is not enough for me to buy into that. I've got to look more at the evidence specifically, which warrants the conclusion. I know that the Bible is the inspired Word of God. And I will begin that trek tonight. And I pray that you'll be with me. And pray that you'll be with me for each consecutive service as we study evidence which proves that I can trust my Bible. And the great, wonderful lessons that I've learned from it can be mine, and I can share with others. Today, I've studied with you why the Bible was not written. Today, I've studied with you why the Bible was written. 
what this Bible says about itself. Tonight, Lord willing, I'll talk about the historicity of the Bible and that it is of such a nature that it proves itself to be the inspired Word of God. I pray you'll be with me. The Bible teaches, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be condemned. The Bible teaches, I tell you, nay, except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. The Bible teaches that now God commands all men everywhere to repent. The Bible teaches that we must repent and be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the remission of our sins. The Bible teaches that I must continue to use my life as a living sacrifice to God and live for Him day by day. Romans 12, verse 1 and 2. Will you believe the Bible or not? Will you obey the Bible or not? Will you do it? My question for you for the present. Won't you come while together we stand and while we sing?